Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we talked about how the feminist movement left black women behind, learned about the struggles in Chicago's hospitality industry, and kept you up to date on the pandemic. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for April 17th, 2020. John and Jamie chatted with restaurateur Kevin Hickey of Decent Beef in the Duck Inn about how the pandemic is changing his business. Hickey discusses shifting from dine-in to delivery, how the layoffs have affected his staff, and what the government needs to do if America wants to preserve its vibrant dining culture. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. We're talking to Chef Hickey from the Duck Inn, from Decent Beef in the Time Out Market, as well as Duck Inn Dogs in Time Out Market. We're going to be talking a little bit about how the restaurant industry is adapting towards this pandemic and new times and kind of what happens when we come out of this. So we're looking forward to the conversation and thanks chef for being with us. Ah, it's a pleasure. Pleasure. Chef, can you take us through, I mean, obviously this has been a very difficult time for the hospitality industry and all small businesses, but can you kind of take us through the timeline of what happened between, um, News of the pandemic breaking, the kind of shelter-in-place order, um, transitioning to delivery, and, and what you've had to do with your restaurant and your staff. Because, I mean, obviously, this, is, this has been an incredibly um, steep and, and very fast thing that's happened to the entire industry. Yeah, it happened a lot faster than, than I, I guess, it's all a little bit of a blur now. You know, I mean, we, we started hearing uh, that there was going to be restrictions on number of people allowed in your in your space and so on and so forth and uh you know uh, cutting your occupancy in half and so on and so forth and we all got together uh for a group meeting a bunch of us at a restaurant in logan square and uh you know a lot of what are we going to do what should we do how should we do this you know a lot of questions so on and so forth and uh, we were all then just heading back to our restaurants for the uh, the announcement from uh, Governor Pritzker at whatever time it was. That was a Sunday, three probably three weeks ago today. Yeah, I'd say yeah, three, three weeks, weeks ago. ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know I already had all of my staff coming in for a meeting because I figured we were probably going to wind up uh, you know having to severely cut back hours and so forth with the restrictions and we were working on schedules of how do we have you know if we can only take 50 people in the restaurant at any given time we're gonna have to turn people away well how much staff do we want to have on you know we're like trying to build schedules and we kind of pushed the meeting off to three o'clock to wait to see what the uh the governor had to say and then you know and then you know he he makes his announcement that uh, restaurants are the restaurants and bars are closed and so on and so forth. And now I've got, you know, 25 people sitting there for a meeting staring at me. I'm like, uh, you know, they're like, what are we going to do? I'm like, I don't know. That's just happened. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll get back to you. We had a, we had a good busy Sunday night and people were incredibly generous and, and tipping huge. And, uh, and then we just got together on Monday and figured out, you know, the last thing I really wanted to do was close, uh, even though I pretty much had to furlough my entire hourly staff. Um, I still had my managers and chefs from the Duck Inn, and I had my chef managers from Time Out Market, where we had two concepts, Duck Inn Dog and uh, Decent Beef. And Time Out Market had already made the decision to close uh, before the governor's uh, ruling had come out, because I think, you know, they 
they saw the writing on the wall with their they have properties in New York and uh, Boston and Lisbon, Portugal. So uh, I was always trying to figure out how to work those people into this, you know, this workforce and so forth. So we decided to, to we, you know, luckily we already were doing um, delivery and pickup. We were already set up with Uber Eats and Caviar and, uh, and Grubhub. And we had our menus, you know, somewhat of our menus on there everything. So it wasn't a huge transition for us to add more stuff to the menus and, and you know, just turn ourselves into a delivery pickup restaurant. So it's, uh, it's been a huge learning curve for the last three weeks of what that means and the details of, of, uh, of doing that, not only from food preparation and packaging and uh, marketing and, and so on and so forth. It's, uh, it's been, a, been a handful. Chef, what do, what do people in the industry do? You mentioned uh, um, folks are, are, are furloughed and you look all around the industry and, and um you know, with, with no dining rooms, uh, th- there's a big transition for every single restaurant. What is what is kind of the best practice, or what are you seeing around uh, around the country, folks in this situation? Well, I mean, I can't uh, I can't tell anybody what the best practice is for them. Um, I, I I only know what works what has worked for us. You know, we're you know we we started off with a great deal of trepidation and, and not a, a good deal of uh, high hopes for for revenue. And we're not a labor, we're, we're not a, a delivery and pickup type of restaurant. You know, you just, you know, when you think of, you know, like I'm sitting at home, I want to order in, uh, you know, your mind goes to things that you've traditionally ordered in, regardless of the fact that the, the, there's been a paradigm shift in delivery and so forth with the third party uh, apps and, and, and service providers. Uh, you still think, oh, I want some Chinese, I want some Thai food, I want pizza. You know, those are the things that I've ordered my whole life, and maybe that's a generational thing. Uh, but uh, we actually have, have done a pretty decent job of transitioning. And you know, and I've I've watched the marketplace. I've seen what other people are doing. I've heard what other people are having success with. So we pivoted with, uh, with offerings by saying, okay, let's you know, people. At first, the first week, I mean, it was it was nuts. People were ordering like crazy. You know, you, you see regulars ordering. They've got three kids at home, and they're ordering, you know, entree for mom, entree for dad, burger, fries, this, that, and the other thing. And their bill is huge, and then they don't order again because it's like, holy crap! I just spent one hundred twenty-five dollars on delivery with all the fees and the delivery app, and you know, we went to the grocery store yesterday and spent two hundred bucks, and went to Costco and spent three hundred bucks, and we've ordered in every day for a week, and then all of a sudden you saw the orders just drop uh, at the end of the week. I think because I think everybody like looked around and said, "Oh my God, we've ordered in three times this week, and we bought a second refrigerator to hold all the food that we bought, and all the food we bought's going bad." So then we saw a little dip, but it's been coming back. And you know, we pivoted with the menu, offering value-oriented family meals, um, home-style, you know, uh, uh, comfort food. You know, our fried chicken night is huge. Uh, always has been popular with the Duck Inn. We're doing almost the same numbers on a Tuesday that we did when we were open for dining with fried chicken. Uh, Wednesday night with pizzas, uh, we've done really well with that. Always done very well here because we have a beautiful outdoor patio and stuff. But pizza was an easy one to say, oh, we'll just keep doing pizza. 
uh, and Fridays we're doing, uh, I started doing fish and chips. You know, I, I lived in Ireland and, and, and in England for years and perfected fish and chips living over there. And people were looking for Lent items on Fridays before this all started. So, you know, we kept going with the fish and chips and that's been wildly successful. I mean, we sold 75 orders of fish and chips on Friday night. Um, Saturday and Sunday, we do lasagna dinner for four to six people, depending on how big of an eaters you got. Um, and you get a tray of lasagna, garlic bread salad, my wife's chocolate chip cookies. We're selling that, you know, 20, 30 of those a weekend. Uh, we started doing mix and match family style entrees. So you can pick, uh, short ribs, uh, chicken thighs or cod and then mix and match a bunch of different, uh, side dishes and add wine or add desserts or add whatever you want to it. We're selling a ton of those. People are really digging that. So, you know, it's, it's, we're just trying to figure out what people want, what they're looking for, see if we can have it for them. We're going to do a great Easter dinner uh, next Saturday, next Sunday that you can order lamb shanks and, and all kinds of spring vegetables and something, you know, uh, so, you just kind of got it, you know, someplace, like I said, you know, like, like our friends over at Antique Taco, they were built for delivery and pickup. So they're just rolling along. I, I bet you they'd probably do next change their menu. Uh, but us, you know, we had to really, really go back to the, the drawing board. on it. Yeah. Chef, I noticed you snuck in there uh, uh, one very famous item of yours, which is the chocolate chip cookies. And your wife. I, I don't know how they've become famous. I, <laughs> we've never offered them before. Well, um, before that's what I'm saying. I didn't. I, we haven't had them at the restaurant. Well, you know, I mean, I I'm not a pastry chef, but I, I have a small repertoire of what I can do, and we're selling a lot of desserts. But my wife is one of the most amazing bakers, and she's a self-taught, all from books. And these chocolate chip cookies, she worked for years on getting the recipe right, and then I worked for days on converting the recipe from, you know, tablespoons and you know, a stick of butter and this and that to, to volume where we could be, you know, doing a thousand milliliters of this and, you know, two thousand grams of that so we could get it just right. Uh, but I think we got it. Man, people are getting warm, hot cookies. They're digging it. But that's what people want right now. Is Have you had any problems with your supply chain at all? I mean, I, I think that... Oh yeah, I, I know that at some other restaurants that's been a big concern. What what are you doing to try to alleviate that? Well, there's not a whole lot you can do to alleviate it. You know, some of the some of the delivery, uh, uh, some of some of the food suppliers are operating fairly normally, and some are not. And again, we're learning as we go. Sometimes you know, we're running out of things that we didn't think we'd run out of, and we're being really really cautious with ordering. Like I'm really on my guys like. You know, if we run out of something, let's look at it whether or not we want to keep it on the menu. You know, we had we had a beautiful salmon dish with curried vegetables and, and uh, uh, kohlrabi rice on the menu, uh, on the regular menu before we closed, and we put it on the delivery menu, and we, we didn't sell any. And so, uh, you know, we sold a few here and there, so I just stopped putting it on the menu because I can't afford to have a product on the menu that is going to sell one a day. You know, fish goes bad quick, and it's not in, it's not inexpensive and uh so you have to be careful with that insofar as uh difficulty with the supply chain i mean what i found is some some of our suppliers have limited availability so i've been going and picking things up more than i would ever do like i you know to me it's always like a lot of people in my industry love a place called restaurant depot 
and Restaurant Depot is like Home Depot for restaurant tours. Um, but I always hate that place. It's just to me going to Restaurant Depot on a Saturday afternoon, it just feels like failure because it feels like either I failed to to order enough or I forgot to order or I don't have credit with anybody and I have to go somewhere where I pay cash. Um, so I hate going there. Well, I'm there, I'm there like three times a week now because. You know, you got to be very careful with what you buy. You got to buy just enough, and you know, you start doing this delivery and pickup, and there's a whole other level of cost involved that you didn't have when you were doing dine-in. And I think, uh, you know, I think the dining public does not have any concept of the cost involved when they order from their favorite restaurant through Uber Eats or Grubhub or any of the other delivery services. Now you've got packaging. So for everything you order, I have to have a package for that item. Then I have to have bags and I have to have other things and napkins or whatever else. And then any one of those uh, delivery uh, services is taking anywhere from 20 to 30% of the revenue from the restaurant. So you, you order, you call up the duck in, you order a $10 duck fat hot dog. The duck in's only getting $7. Wow. And we're spending 50 cents on a uh, environmentally safe container to put the hot dog in and then however many cents on a bag. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you either have to raise your prices on those delivery apps in order to realize any sort of a profit margin, but then you run the risk of alienating your customers and they're like, oh, what the hell, man? I'm paying 12 bucks for a duck fat dog. I usually pay 10. It's like, well, you know, that's what that's part of the convenience of being able to sit on the couch, go on your phone, you know, tap your screen and have food show up at your door. Chuck Mertz spoke to historian Andrew Liu on the blame game around coronavirus. Liu discusses how the pandemic impacts the global market and why some want to call COVID-19 the Chinese virus. This is Hell airs every Sunday and Thursday at 10 a.m. By calling this the Chinese virus, aside from leading to attacks and violence against Chinese Americans, what does it do to the popular public view of what China is when we associate it with, first and foremost, a virus? Yeah, I mean, that's a... That's the that's a loaded question. There's a lot of things, a lot of ways to go. I guess I would say that 
in the, when these politicians have tried to defend the usage of this, they've said they're not scapegoating the Chinese people, they're scapegoating the Chinese government, uh, which obviously doesn't make a lot of sense. You don't name viruses after governments, right? You name it after places and the people uh, by, who are associated with that place. So that has led, uh, like you said, to all sorts of incidents of anti-Asian American racism, Chinese American racism in the, in the U.S. I think more big picture, uh, something to look out for, something to be careful about is that what is Trump? What are the Republicans? How are the conservative and perhaps also some Democrats as well, of course? What are they trying to do with this framing? Uh, you know, like you said, Trump has kind of he's tried to back away, but, you know, in the, in the most Trumpian way of sort of wink, wink, you know, you know what I mean kind of way uh, where his audience knows exactly what he's thinking. Right. Um, in the long term, like what is what is the goal here? This isn't just I think not a, this, is, this isn't just about the coronavirus. I think that there's a potential that. Trump and, uh, you know, who knows what's going on in the White House, who's, who's really in charge. But, you know, there's, a, there's been an effort before the coronavirus to scapegoat China, uh, to target China, to try to cut off or de-link the United States economy from the Chinese economy uh, and to pin a lot of the blame for what is going wrong in the United States on the sort of evil, abstract, nefarious thing that's known as just China. Uh, so even before the coronavirus pandemic kind of, you know, panic started the last few weeks. I, my, I think my question is, you know, Trump says whatever he wants to say, and these Republican Congress people say whatever they want to say, but why were, why are some parts of the American public ready for that message, right? What prepared them to receive um, this idea that it's all China's fault, that China's responsible? Um, and uh, I think we have to take a serious look at all the different ways that the American media, American political discourse has framed China in a very demonizing way. And this isn't, and I don't also want to get into this trap of thereby kind of painting the Chinese government um, or the connections between the US and the Chinese economy as angelic, right, and completely innocent. Um, one shouldn't have to choose between the two. The PRC government has many. Um, there's, there's many reasons to criticize their response as well. In many ways, they're just as obfuscatory and uh, opaque and uh, sort of dismissive of their own citizens' lives as the United States as well. Um, so one shouldn't have to choose, but uh, certainly uh, it does seem like the United States government is trying to, it's a rhetorical device that in the long term is, I think, is, is going to be probably the electoral strategy of saying, you know, this isn't our fault, it's China's fault, and perhaps part of a broader shift uh, of political and economic strategy uh, on the global stage. Uh, so I think those are some of the opening thoughts we should uh, keep in mind when we think about uh, the, the scapegoating game. Two different nations who did a horrible job in reacting to the coronavirus, and they're both trying to blame one another and obfuscate their own responsibility to their own citizens. One of the things that you were mentioning in that, con and uh, your answer was, and I didn't write this down before, but you were mentioning this kind of wink-wink kind of thing when it comes <laughs> to China. This is the dog whistle part of the Trump administration, the Trump presidential campaign. Uh, well, first of all, what do you think is the message that's being sent when, you know, even before this, like you're saying, whether it was yeah. China on trade, whether it was China on climate change, what is the message of that dog whistle? And why is it so hard? And I, I, I can't I think it's just very difficult for the media to point out that that is a dog whistle and the message mm -hmm. that it sends. Uh, I think I think the dog whistle, you know, we could write like books about this, right? The way that right, right. Asian Americans and Chinese Americans, the Chinese immigrants have been portrayed in U.S. history. Um, 
I think, I mean, you, you, know, you could go back to the 19th century if you want, but more recently, I guess, the, 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 the image is that China is this giant thing, right? We talk about how big China is, how many people there are in China, and how authoritarian the government is. Um, there is, I think, an assumption that Chinese people, therefore, are sort of the tools of the Chinese government, despite all sorts of evidence to the contrary, that lots of diaspora or people in China themselves have lots of criticism, disagreements with the government. Um, and then I think, uh, I think most concretely, there is a sense of life in America and the American economy has not been doing well for decades, right? And, uh, the, you know, it's hard to understand why. I don't, you know, I don't understand why. And I, I you know, academics who try to study this all, all their life can't really point out exactly why. Uh, but, you know, so there's a, almost, there's this weird comfort, right, in being able to pin it on a concrete, visible, you know, force, in this case would be, you know, Chinese, the Chinese government or the Chinese people. So I think there's a sort of scapegoating, there's a sense of that there's this global, not global necessarily, but this larger than life kind of incomprehensible thing out there that it penetrates into, just like popular culture, we think about, uh, you know, they took away our basketball games in the fall, they are taking over universities, they are, it's unfair that they're so good at the SAT, uh, so all sorts of like popular culture, um, the popular popular culture representation of Asian Americans is always that, you know, that's like this kind of harm, this kind of harmless quaint thing. Oh, they're all very nerdy and very good at making money, but it also has this dark side of uh, kind of portraying them as sort of um, this economic threat, right, to American, uh, to the American way of life. Um, and uh, why is it so hard to point out? I think um, I don't know. I, that's a good question. Uh, I, I, you know, I kind of scratch my head thinking about how the corporate media decides what it wants to say. But I think, I mean, I think for them, the corporate media, by being predominantly upper class, they they work with and live with uh, and uh, have a high high uh, esteem for uh, sort of overachieving Asian Americans. You know, like Andrew Yang, for instance, right? Um, and I'm not I'm not trying to like you know criticize Andrew Yang or anything um, as as a particular problem, but just to say that they are sort of out of touch perhaps with the sort of classed way that they see the world versus the American public. And the attitude towards Asia is perhaps a symptom of that, right? Like they have imbibed this globalization Kool-Aid that it's only a good thing to have relations with China without thinking about how if you kind of unleash capital to do whatever it wants and kind of outsource other jobs to cheap Chinese workers, uh, cheap, you know, cheap wage workers in China that this actually um, um, has a deleterious effect for the majority of the American public, right? Uh, so, I mean, my, and my goal isn't to say, like, is to, is to sort of um, uh, justify this, uh, this sort of outrage. I think we, don't, we shouldn't default to a sort of nationalistic point of view. The, I guess the goal would be to think, to rethink, um, if, we are, if we are committed to a sort of internationalist perspective, we have to rethink what has gone wrong with, you know, globalization, as it was called 20 years ago, and is there a better way to think about an international solidarity, let's say, with between the average working American, the average working person in China, Asia, or elsewhere around the world? On this episode, we'll be exploring my new residence since... <sighs> ah, cut and take it again. Try not to yawn. Well, it's late, and I need to catch some Z's. We'll be done soon, don't worry. That's gonna be home and like... I know, just get the opening done without yawning and we're good. Okay, let's dance. And action. 
On this episode, we'll be exploring my new residence. Since being kicked out of the Undertown, I... Right, cut. That was great, but I don't well, like I the mean, fact it's... that... Uh-oh. What God, the heck are great, you guys doing great. in my bedroom? My idea. I Sorry. Uh, we just needed a quiet place to record. Just His this idea. one line, and we just finished, so we're... Dude, next time, just ask. And Kyle, just because you're living back in the basement doesn't mean you have free run over the whole building. I, Remember I, what I said about I, boundaries and limits? Yes, they should always be tested. No, artistically, yes. <laughs> now, both of you, leave. Such a I need to sleep. Goofball. You actually sleep? Well, I can't do it unassisted. Mm. Well, be careful. That stuff is habit-forming. I'm a busy man, Petrowski. That's why I use Eddie's Sundown. I've never tried it. Uh, yeah, I know. It's a Bridgeport thing. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> well, what is it, like a sublingual? Out, guys. All right, geez. I've got to get ready for bed. Okay. I'm just what a dork. <clears throat> Listen, Kyle, I don't want to preach. Sleep aids are really dangerous. It's I don't... not a pill. It's a person. Oh, like one of the CDs for meditation. No, no. Now he's What's up, a... Kyle. Ed in there? Uh, yeah, he's. Yeah, he is. Ed, you decent? Yeah, come in, man. He's Eddie's Sundown. Okay, but what's he do? Here, I'm gonna carefully open the door. Now just look and listen. How's work? Never ending, man. Ready for sleep? Yeah, I'm ready. Hey, you see what he's what doing? He's not part of the process. Jack, Jack, where you going? Come here, stop. I'm calling Jack, the police. Hey, chill out, man. Kyle, uh, can you please grab his feet? Don't yeah. you touch him. Hey, you Jack, want what? I should just leave him on the floor? What's wrong with you? Yeah, what's your problem? Leave him alone. He's, You're going to wake him up. His sleeper hold is the sleep aid? Yes. Dude, don't talk about me like I'm not in the room. I grabbed the legs. It's not a sleeper hold. It's called a sundown, and it's actually... Painless. It's true. People all over Bridgeport use his service. He is the Sandman of the South Side. So he's fine. Yeah. Tell you what, Sundown, I'm gonna lift my shoeski. You guys no. be quiet. You don't even have to be quiet. All he's right, out for go. at least the next eight hours. All right. So, so how's business? It paid for this sweet right. jean jacket. Is it a hard job? Uh, it's mostly like third shift. I don't really even sleep myself. Wow. <laughs> I know. Ironic. I mean, is there any medical study or anything that shows, like, you're not actually causing brain damage or any long-term effects? No idea. Yeah. Kyle, it's almost bedtime. Yeah, you're right. It's about that time. You too? Night, John. See you tomorrow. <laughs> it, wow. <laughs> wow. Whoa. Wow. See? He's asleep. <laughs> Weird, man. <laughs> right? Hey, could you help me drag him to the basement? Thanks for the help. Off to dailies. Thanks for letting me record you. Is that what that is? Yeah, portable. Uh, you safe to drive? I wasn't drinking. It's 3.47 a.m. Driving tired is just as dangerous. True. I'll choke you out for free. Seriously? It's non-habit forming. Okay, let's do it. All right, uh, turn yeah. around right here. Okay. <laughs> Uh-oh. I don't know how to shut this thing off. Uh. Uh. Naked ray gun rules. EDM and new wave suck. This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump melts down as it becomes apparent he ignored virus warnings, unemployment hits 20%, governors tell Trump where he can shove it, panic Republicans push for a swift reopening even if thousands more die, New York is digging mass graves, and surprise, most of Trump's promises have been fiction. It would be a joke if people weren't dying. 
These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1177, April 10th. 100,000 people have now died worldwide. New York remains a brutal hotspot with officials there now digging mass graves in the Bronx. 11,000 have died in the state to date. Trump continued to blame everyone else from former President Barack Obama to the media to the Democrat Party to state governors. The number of people seeking unemployment shot up again last week as 6.6 million more people filed claims. The numbers are expected to keep rising in the coming weeks. 17 million Americans have filed. The head of the IMF said the pandemic will push the global economy into the deepest recession since the Great Depression. But efforts to pass additional relief have stalled in D.C. Trump asked Congress to quickly approve $250 billion for loans to small businesses, but Republicans and Democrats disagree on the scope of the package. Democrats want to double the size of the bill and add money for hospitals and state and local governments. Republicans have also balked at oversight demands. And Trump ended funding for drive through coronavirus testing sites, saying initially, quote, many of the community-based testing sites are not closing but transitioning to state-managed sites. Late in the day after a ferocious backlash, Trump backed off. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin claimed that if, quote, the doctors let us, the U.S. economy could reopen in May. Attorney General William Barr called the practice of social distancing draconian and claimed that it was telling, quote, Americans to go home and hide under their bed. Trump said Americans, quote, want to go back to work because they're going stir-crazy. Dr. Anthony Fauci said the behavior changes are starting to have a real effect and said the death toll may look more like 60,000 than the 100,000 to 200,000 predicted. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell also warned against trying to return to normal too quickly. And Barr told Fox News that a Russia investigation run by U.S. Attorney John Durham would not just produce yet another report on the Russia probe, but, quote, bring to justice people who are engaged in abuses. Claiming the federal officials started the Russia investigation without any basis to sabotage the presidency, and that any errors investigated committed were not mistakes or sloppiness, reflected, quote, something far more troubling. Barr's chilling words that Trump, at the time the investigation was opened, was a candidate, not the president. Day 1178, April 11th. Pence tried to block public health officials from appearing on CNN until the network agreed to carry daily White House coronavirus briefings in their entirety. Pence later backed down. CNN and other networks, including NPR, NBC, and WGN here in Chicago, have been carrying the daily briefings on delay due to Trump's lies and falsehoods. Trump told Mitch McConnell he would veto the $2 trillion CARES Act if the legislation contained any funding for the U.S. Post Office. The Post Office is close to running out of cash in September, but Trump doesn't want to fund it because he incorrectly believes it is subsidizing Amazon. In fact, the Post Office's problems stem from a ruinous pension plan that forces the company's stockpile cash. Republicans also long wanted to privatize the company, which is an essential service during the pandemic and is likely to be critical in the November election as voting by mail expands. For the first time, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments via teleconference. It is the first time the court has ever heard cases remotely. It is also allowing Americans to listen in. The court will hear arguments in 10 cases, including one over subpoenas for Trump's financial records. And the Senate put a hold on confirming Trump's judicial nominations until the pandemic subsides. A total of 38 lifetime appointments are currently awaiting hearings in the Senate. And in excess of 80% of the benefits of a tax change in the relief package that Congress passed month will go to those who earn more than $1 million. The addition was inserted by Senate Republicans and will cost taxpayers $90 billion this year alone. Day 1179, April 12th. In a deeply reported and damaging expose, the New York Times ran a front-page story that showed in detail how Trump had fumbled his response to the coronavirus. 
focusing instead on his image and his re-election. Trump ignored advice as early as February that the nation needed to introduce social distancing and order massive amounts of PPE. Trump ignored this because he believed that what he calls the deep state, experts in government, were in fact conspiring against him and his re-election. Aides say Trump also seemed unable to absorb simple information. Those aides who took the pandemic crisis seriously, Trump lashed out at. Trump subsequently systematically lied about the promptness of his own response. Trump is also bizarrely obsessed with quack treatments for the coronavirus and appears to have financial interest in at least one company making them. As a result, lives were lost. Dr. Anthony Fauci subsequently confirmed the report on CNN, saying, quote, You know, as I've said many times, we look at it from a pure health standpoint. We make a recommendation. Often the recommendation is taken. Sometimes it is not. It is what it is. We are where we are right now. All in all, Trump was warned a staggering 10 times about the threat of the coronavirus and failed to take action. An apoplectic Trump tweeted following the interview that the fake news opposition party is pushing with all their might the fact that President Trump ignored early warnings about the threat. Trump reportedly spent the weekend calling people close to him and asking them, quote, what do you think of Fauci? Trump then angrily retweeted a call for Fauci's firing, while again hailing his early restrictions on travel from China and claiming the media had failed to recognize that decision. In fact, at least 40,000 people traveled from China to the U.S. in the two months after Trump supposedly opposed his ban. And Peter Navarro defended the administration's pandemic response, angrily challenging 60 Minutes hosts to show them how they covered pandemic prep under previous administrations, which they then did, playing a series of clips from 2009 and 2005, including an interview with one Dr. Anthony Fauci. Trump has deported nearly 21st, using emergency coronavirus measures and suspending habeas corpus. Day 1180, April 13th. Despite grandiose promises, many of the initiatives that Trump announced have never been followed up on. Examples include Trump's promise of sweeping national campaigns of screening, including drive-through sample collections and lab testing in partnership with retailers such as Target. This has never happened. And while two labs have been able to produce tests, Trump failed to produce swabs and test tubes. The American Clinical Laboratory Association, who coordinates such efforts, said Trump had also failed to provide government funds to begin and build new testing facilities, national standards prioritize who gets tested, and government support for the testing supply chain. Trump also claimed his administration would purchase at a very good price large quantities of crude oil for storage in the U.S. Strategic Reserve. It has not done so. And Jared Kushner's supply chain task force wasted weeks with mismanagement of the chain, in part by failing to heed long-established best practices and ignoring smaller producers with proven track records. A senior aide was quoted as saying, quote, Jared and his friends decided they were going to do their thing. It cost weeks. Trump wants to cut wages for migrant workers. Agricultural Secretary Sonny Perdue wants to reduce pay for people who are in the country under the H-2A seasonal guest worker program. Currently, farmers must pay laborers a comparable rate to local hourly pay laws. Purdue claims this is, quote, kind of pricing ourselves out of business. And the CIA told employees in a classified briefing that taking the anti-malarial drug peddled by Trump for coronavirus has dangerous side effects, including sudden death. The CIA added in bold type in the mail, quote, please do not obtain this medication on your own. Day 1181, April 14th. Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York has formed a seven-state regional advisory council to guide the reopening of the nation's largest financial market. Cuomo's council, which includes Pennsylvania and Delaware, was mirrored on the coast by Washington, Oregon, and California, who also said they would work as a unit. 
Those decisions enraged Trump, who was already furious at media reports this weekend that he dithered inexcusably. Following that announcement, Trump spent most of the day attacking the media and proclaiming his authority was, quote, total. Claiming falsely he has the power to overrule governors and open up states, Trump said he would reopen the country based on a lot of facts and a lot of instincts. It is the decision of the president to open up the states. When somebody is the president of the United States, the authority is total, and that's the way it's got to be. It's total. The governors know that. When Trump was asked exactly what provision of the Constitution gave him that power, Trump said numerous provisions. The president of the United States calls the shots. States can't do anything without the approval of the president of the United States. As mentioned, this is completely false. Trump apparently does not have a plan to reopen the economy and allow Americans to safely resume work as he's been unable to settle on the benchmarks they will use on deciding which parts of the country reopen and when. Trump apparently is also not listening to health experts in this process. He is instead receiving advice on his cell phone from a number of executives and donors. Then during an outrageous press briefing that lasted a record two hours and 28 minutes, Trump trotted out Dr. Fauci to deny that he had confirmed the Times' damaging Easter weekend story and then melted down on the podium. Presenting a campaign-style newsreel of Fox News clips, Trump alleged that, so the story in the New York Times is a total fake, it's a fake newspaper and they write fake stories, and someday, hopefully in five years when I'm not here, those papers are all going out of business because nobody's going to read them. While the video played, Trump grinned and pointed to the screen when he saw clips of himself speaking. He also glowered at the press in an open show of contempt and said, quote, everything we did was right. White House reporters pushed back in real time with ABC asking, why did you feel the need to do that? Trump replied, because we're getting fake news and I'd like to have it corrected. Everything we did was right. CBS News asked bluntly, tens of thousands of Americans are dead. How is this rant supposed to make people feel confident in this unprecedented crisis? Trump replied, you're so disgraceful. It's so disgraceful the way you say that. Bernie Sanders endorsed Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee for president, throwing his weight behind Biden's candidacy and taking a major step toward bringing unity to the party. New polls show Biden with a slim lead over Trump, but Trump's campaign raised a staggering $212 million in the last quarter. Day 1182, April 15th. Governor Cuomo, who is leading that seven-state consortium, pushed back strongly at Trump's assertions of presidential power, saying, quote, we don't have a king in this country, and we're also not going to follow your order. Trump then claimed that Cuomo's actions and statements were a mutiny. In Illinois, Governor J.D. Pritzker is apparently organizing a similar consortium in Midwestern states, all of which is a tacit admission the federal government has failed. Trump then spent most of Tuesday attacking the World Health Organization, trying to shift blame to them for his mishandling of the pandemic and claiming you'd cut off their funding. In another rant delivered from the White House, Trump also attacked China and tried again to blame others for his documented failings while making numerous false statements. Dr. Fauci undercut Trump again bluntly saying, quote, we're not there yet. Fauci added that Trump's May 1st target for restarting the economy is, quote, overly optimistic. Hardline Republicans are mounting a pressure campaign to reopen the country, going so far as to claim that suicides will be epidemic if they don't. The House Freedom Caucus claims reopening should have happened yesterday, and that restrictions on public gatherings infringe on Americans' religious freedoms. Religious gatherings have in fact been one of the main incubators of the virus. Another member, Ken Buck, went so far as to call the fatalities hype, claiming, I don't know anybody that wants to be the person who says 33,000 deaths are okay, but 100,000 is not acceptable, but that's what officials are elected to do. Trump forced the Treasury to print his name on economic stimulus checks being mailed out. Adding Trump's name as a break from protocol, 
and it will appear on the memo section of the check because he's not legally authorized to sign such disbursements. Trump wanted to launch a talk radio show from the White House for two hours a day, every day. Trump's idea was an open phone line for people to call in and engage one-on-one with the president. However, he nixed that idea because he did not want to compete with Rush Limbaugh. Aides didn't know if he was joking or not. In Wisconsin, there's been a major shock as Democrats scored an enormous victory as a liberal challenger while a Trump-backed incumbent to win a key state Supreme Court seat. Jill Karofsky ousted the conservative incumbent Justice Daniel Kelly by 90,000 votes. Her win has potential implications for voting rights in the states, which Republicans have actively attempted to suppress. Day 1183, April 16th. Trump is to issue new federal guidelines on social distancing as he hopes to restart the country soon, but public health officials continue to warn it is far too early. Testing is lagged far behind what is said to be needed. In New York, Governor Cuomo now mandates that all people wear masks when outside. Connecticut is said to be following suit. Retail sales plunged in March by close to 9%, a drop that is the largest in the nearly three decades that we've tracked this sort of data. Data for April is likely to be far worse as nationwide shelter-in-place orders began to kick in then. The retail sector employs one in 10 Americans. Job numbers showed another 5.5 million people out of work for a total of 21 million people. Economists now suggest unemployment could be at 20%. Trump formed an opening the country council of high-profile business and labor leaders who supposedly will advise them on when and how to restart the U.S. economy. Some business leaders had no idea they were included until they heard that their names had been read by Trump. Others said they had no idea what they were signing up for, nor whether or not they could actually participate. Trump announced the council by saying, quote, I'm tired of watching baseball games that are 14 years old, but I haven't actually had too much time to watch. And Trump claimed he would invoke a never-before-used presidential power to adjourn Congress so he could fill vacant positions with recess appointments on the federal bench. Senator Mitch McConnell, who is the leader of the Senate, quickly let it be known that was not going to happen. Just 38% of Americans are satisfied that Trump is doing everything he can to stop the coronavirus. 55% of Americans say federal measures have not gone far enough. A whopping 79% of sports fans say they will not return to games in public until a vaccine is found. Trump's approval rating continues to plummet. It is now at 41%. Dr. Anthony Fauci has an approval rating of nearly 80%. And that's just among Republicans. These are the Trump Diaries. Mario Smith chatted with Mickey Kendall, author of Hood Feminism, about how the movement largely left women of color behind. Kendall discussed how many actions relied on child care and financial support that women in underserved communities lack. Can feminism end inequality between men and women if it doesn't address the inequalities between women? News from the Service Entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Joining me on Skype, because again, we're in prison. Um, my, my buddy, Mickey Kendall. Mickey, I got Mickey Kendall. I have something in common with uh, The Daily Show and all the other stuff Mickey's been on. Her book, Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot, is uh, a, a Viking Press book, and it is an amazing piece of American literature. And my friend, Mickey Kendall, is on the show. Hey, Mickey Kendall, how you doing? Good. Thank you for having me on. It's been a long time. Last time was at Printer's Row, me, you, and Lee Bay. Yeah, I. Uh, things happened. Something <laughs> happened. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the, first of all, how are you feeling? You you and the family all got COVID-19? 
Yeah. So what happened is that when at the beginning of March, I was actually in New York when everything happened, like, right. I did the daily show. I flew home. Um, I came through Midway because why well, if I don't have to. And I thought I had self quarantined long enough that we were kind of out of the, the window from New York. What I didn't know was that it had been in Chicago for a couple of weeks already. Mm-hmm. And so Originally, we thought I had somehow miscounted my days, but I think because several of the the Walgreens and other grocery stores they've closed now were places I shopped, um, I think I might have actually picked it up in Chicago in one of those places. Mm. Um, And the thing was, at at first, I know how people are are asymptomatic and don't realize they have it. Because at first, I didn't think I had it. I thought I was catching a cold. And then, like that Friday... Because I had been running a fever for a couple of days, so we'd stayed home. But it mm-hmm. wasn't anything but a fever. That Friday, I got up, and it was the strangest thing because I was dizzy standing still. I was mm. just dizzy, period. And I called my doctor, um, and I go, I'm seen at VA. Um, I was in the Army. And yeah. she said, basically, at the time, that, that particular week, she says, I can have you come in for a test. But I'll be honest, because she'd asked me, you know, where I'd been at, you know, I'd just come back from New York, all that. She says, I'll be honest, the chances that you weren't exposed are really low. Because if you were in New York and you were in the airplanes and you took public transit and then you shopped and, you know, on the south and they were already starting to see the trend of the south and west side, I would almost bet you've been exposed. And you're describing the right symptoms so I can make you come in and I can make you do a test. But it's going to take about eight hours to do the test. Wow. Because at that point, there was only one clinic. Right, right, right. Okay. And she says, and that's going to mean you've got to come all the way across town. We're going to stick the swab, you know, to the back of your sinuses. And Oof. it will change absolutely nothing about treatment. And I said, Ooh. well, so I just get to be miserable for nothing? <laughs> Right, and she said, right. basically, I mean, you know, we'll, you'll be counted as confirmed. She says, but I would be astonished. And that was also around the time they were starting to figure out that some 30% of the tests give a false negative. Mm. So she wasn't super impressed by the testing process. I've had the same doctor for years. Um, she's a lovely Russian woman who will tell you directly, <laughs> listen, I can make you be miserable, but I'll be honest. I'm just going to give you the exact same prescription yeah. Drink these fluids. Um, and in my case, she had me, the only rule, so so to speak, because there's no treatment, because it's a virus, right. um, was to not take any cough suppressants. Mm. And, and you, you, you had COVID-19, and then what, was it the two-week period of being sick, like everybody else has I'm been saying? technically still experiencing the occasional symptom. It's not, I'm no longer in what would be considered really sick, I guess. But this mm-hmm. is the longest recovery process I think I've ever experienced. And I've had pneumonia, I've had bronchitis, all of that. I'm that person that will get a cold and then get really sick, you know. Um, this is the first time I can say where it took me like the two weeks they said to get better, but then better is not back to who I was physically before. Mickey, when you say you you didn't have symptoms after two weeks, I mean, are you still having symptoms? I mean, you said it's not just a fever, but are you still suffering from this? Um, mostly it's the fatigue now. It is, I am not as tired as I was. I was able to 
the workout the last few days. But the week after, like, they tell you 72 hours after your fever is gone, you're no longer contagious. So that 72 hours passes, right? The fever leaves. Um, I'm still having a little bit of the tightness in my chest, shortness of breath, so I'm still using the inhaler for another few days after that. And then I realized that I was sleeping like an old lady. I was taking an afternoon nap, and I was going to bed at, like, 10 o'clock. It was bizarre. I am a person who gets by usually on five or six hours of sleep. And until last Friday or Saturday, I was still getting about 12 hours of sleep a night. I'm down to eight now. Oh, congratulations. Like a a normal number. That's a triumph. But I've had insomnia my entire life. So it's very strange to me to be sleeping this much and to feel like I need that much sleep. Hmm. Okay. You, one, I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad everybody is okay. Um, and I'm glad that your husband made you drink smoothies and stuff because he's, he's a good a man. He's, he's a, a good man. He's a good man. <laughs> um, dad boy voice me. Like that deep. Yeah. Rude. Very good. Um, I want to, I want to one, uh, congratulate you again on the book Hood Feminism. Um, and I was talking, when we were talking about um, uh, uh, and leading up to the, to the interview, Feminism for black women plays far differently than it does for white women. Um, And until, I don't want to say this is the first book to cover the subject, but I don't think it's been covered quite this way with this voice before. Uh, Julie Lifecott Holmes in the Washington Post last week uh, wrote a really good review of your book. Um, and she questions, she says, the ache at the heart of Mickey Kendall's bracing new essay collection, Hood Feminism, is whether all women actually have a common set of interests. And she says that you don't ask the question outright. But I'm going to ask you that question. Why is that? Well, so this is going to sound sort of academic, even though it's really not. We don't all have access to the same opportunities or the same safety and freedom levels. So I understand that there are some people for whom their biggest concern is being able to get promoted at their job, to be a CEO. That is not the experience most women are having. That is the experience and concern of less than 1% of women, right? Mm -hmm. It's not even a concern for all white women. It's a concern for a specific subsection of a subsection of very well-off white women. Everybody else is sort of more concerned, right? It's 99% versus 1% problem, where everybody else has got to be concerned with housing at different levels, access to medical care, and that includes reproductive justice. But also, you know, as we're seeing now with the virus, a lot of people are finding out that the insurance and whatever else they have really will not do much, or they don't have insurance at all, will not do much in a pandemic, right? You can't get tested, you can't get to a doctor unless you have a certain level of of privileges. So what is happening, unfortunately, with feminism is that feminism had sort of started to focus on this sort of girl boss, girl power narrative. And there's nothing wrong with that if it was happening in concert with making sure everyone had access to food and healthcare and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Where you're safe, you're fed, you're educated. And then we can talk about who's gonna be in charge. But that's not what happened. We just started talking about who was going to be in charge. And all the rest of you will get to your concerns later. That never ends well. You can't trickle down economics. You can't trickle down feminism. You can't trickle down freedom. 
you kind of have to start from the bottom and work your way up. It's been 100 years since the 19th Amendment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I clearly am not a woman. <laughs> and nor do I profess to know all of the struggles that women go through. But I know a few of those struggles. And chief among those is what you detail uh, or what you address in the book, the idea that feminists or feminism has always had a certain face, a certain spokesperson, a certain figurehead to kind of lead the charge about that. Is that changing, you think? I think it's changing, but I think it's changing in part because we, you know, everyone says, well, women got the right to vote in 1919. It's been 100 years. And then you have to say, well, white women got the right to vote. Not black women, not indigenous women, not Asian women. And then as you sort of break down what was happening and what continued to happen through the subsequent hundred years, right? We're still seeing voting rights under attack right now, today. Um, Then you kind of move into this place where people start to say, well, wait a minute, why aren't things better? And the answer consistently is because that face, that figurehead didn't do anything even for other white women. They did things for well-off white women with a certain level of power and privilege, right? Because technically, feminism doesn't just give you a Hillary Clinton. It gives you a Betsy DeVos. It doesn't just give you, um, you know, someone like Elizabeth Warren, who even if you didn't want to vote for her, at least you could recognize she had a plan and a purpose and was aiming in sort of the right direction. It also gives you the incredible array of people standing beside that giant Cheeto in the White House. Right. You know, and we have to look at, well, we gave women power. Well, what women and power to do what? And and what are they doing with that power? And so that's why we're not all in the same place. We're not all, we didn't clean up our mess before we built this power structure. We didn't get rid of racism. We didn't get rid of any of the other bigotry. We just said, well, women need power too. And some of those figureheads really wanted to have equal power with white men. And now because of the internet, because of, the problems and the fallout, we're starting to see people realize this approach doesn't help most of us. We've got to fix it. Dougal's towing has recently had its license reinstated by court appeal despite notoriety for its predatory practices, predatory being in quotes here. Mm -hmm. Uh, A year ago, uh, this company, which had been in operation for several decades, Mm -hmm. uh, very infamous, uh, it had its business license revoked. uh, You know it when a a Dougal truck comes rolling down your street. Everyone, they shut their doors. (laughs) um, They roll, they put down their blinds. uh, They race off. They they blow red lights. Exactly. Because they they did have a, a, a wide uh, a very strong notoriety in the in the communities in which it was active, uh, and essentially after several two decades of complaints um, for these allegedly illegal practices, a judge declared uh, revoked the business license, but it has been reinstated mm-hmm. uh, for re- unclear reasons. Uh, 
so there are a number of a number of these practices that took place that led to this. Um, uh, I, going through a, a few mentions on the list, there's a large one. Uh, they were known for truckless towing, wherein essentially a an employee would uh, would find a way to get into the car and access uh, activate the engine mm-hmm. without the key and then drive it away. That was something they were known for. Um, if they couldn't tow your car, they would use uh, something that's known as the eel. And now the eel is similar to the boot um, in that it, it, it restricts movement sure. of the vehicle. But instead of immobilizing the wheel, it actually would go into under the hood sure. onto the battery and drain it. And uh, if you would attempt if, – if anyone were to attempt to remove the eel who was not um, – did not have the proper right. credentials to do so, it would shock them. Uh, There's a number of injuries related to that. Um, There were some reports of food trucks that would be towed. Uh, The owner would go pay the money to get the food truck back and all the food would be gone. Um, And one individual uh, who spoke under the condition of anonymity even claimed that they had to pay an additional $1,000 on top of their normal fees to have an employee of Dougal's Towing remove the, quote, kilo of cocaine we hid in the vehicle. Uh, Undisclosed. Yes. Um, uh, they they. So is the idea that they that they told them we've hid a kilo of cocaine there and we're not going to remove it until we you pay us this amount of money. Yes. Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.